This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Trade bans and the fate of detained Australians will be on the agenda when the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has talks with her Chinese counterpart in Beijing later today. It's the first time an Australian minister has been allowed to visit China in more than three years. Officially, this visit is to mark the 50th anniversary of the Whitlam government establishing diplomatic ties with Beijing. But Senator Wong herself acknowledges there are serious issues that need to be worked through. Political reporter Jane Norman is at Parliament House in Canberra. Sabra, touching down in a very cold Beijing, Penny Wong said the fact that she's in China meeting with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi is in itself an achievement. And this will, of course, be her third meeting with the minister. And I guess you have to remember that this time last year, then Foreign Minister Maurice Payne couldn't even secure a phone call with Minister Wang Yi. So there has clearly been some progress. But Senator Wong is saying having dialogue is the prerequisite for resolving some big issues in the bilateral relationship that have really become significant impediments. The $20 billion worth of trade sanctions that China has slapped on Australian goods at the height of political tensions back in 2020, as well as the plight of Australian journalist Chung Lei, who was detained also in 2020, and Australian writer Yang Heng Jun, who was detained a year earlier. Speaking on the tarmac in Beijing, Penny Wong says she'll be raising these issues with her Chinese counterpart in their two-hour meeting this evening? Uh, Well, look, it's very good to be here uh, in China after uh, quite a long time between visits. Uh, Can I acknowledge and uh, thank the government of the People's Republic of China for the invitation to be here? Well, I think the the mark of success is dialogue itself. Uh, We obviously have a lot of issues to work through and dialogue is a prerequisite for working through them. And Jane, this is the first ministerial visit in more than three years. What's prompted this turnaround in the bilateral relationship? Well, officially, Sabra, this visit uh, was at the invitation of China to mark the establishment of uh, diplomatic relations 50 years ago. But I think it's fair to say Labor's election in May provided a chance to reset what had become a deeply uh, strained relationship. And Labor has certainly toned down the kind of rhetoric towards China that the coalition was using. But what's interesting is it's largely maintained the same approach or stance towards Beijing on key issues like the South China Sea on the status of Taiwan, even pushing back against China's rising influence in the Pacific. These are issues that the Albanese government has shown no signs it's sort of willing to compromise on. So if you zoom out and look at this visit in a more global context, China itself has started to shift its strategy. Gone is the kind of wolf-warrior diplomacy of years gone by. President Xi Jinping used last month's global summits to almost launch a charm offensive, which would suggest that he's conscious of how it's being viewed globally. So it's obviously positive that Beijing is increasingly willing to uh, engage with countries like Australia. But Sabra, what will really be the test in the weeks and months following this visit is whether there is any movement on those damaging trade sanctions and, of course, any movement on the detention of Australians. That's Jane Norman there in Canberra, and there are already signs of a slight thawing in the relationship, particularly for business. To tell us a little more about that, I spoke a short time ago with David Olson, the president of the Australia-China Business Council, who's in Hong Kong. 
Well, it's a remarkable achievement. In just the first seven months of the Albanese government, we've moved from a very dire position with China to something where, which is quite unexpected, really, we're having a very significant ministerial conversation about issues that are important to both nations. And when asked what her mark of success was for this visit, the foreign minister said it was the dialogue itself. What would you like to see happen next? Well, I think the foreign minister is correct in saying that dialogue itself is a mark of success. And we all agree that the process we're going through uh, will take some time to, to resolve. But if we're talking about what what is a mark of success, I think, first of all, the fact that we are talking is important. Um, I think it will be a mark of success if we can come to some agreement, um, and this is publicly announced, that there will be further ministerial, government and other dialogues taking place. Uh, re-engagement at all levels is absolutely critical right now. I also hope that there might be some form of agreement to establish a working group or other uh, mechanism to develop a program of activity to take forward this policy dialogue in a practical way going forward. And are Australian businesses getting any hints that the bans on exports might soon ease or disappear? Yes, we are, in fact, getting some uh, really interesting responses right now. Um, There's been renewed interest, certainly amongst China's Trade Promotion Authority, CCPIT, for the resumption of business roundtables and delegations. We've been receiving a number of those requests and have already acted on them. But importantly, Chinese businesses are really reaching out now to our members, to Australian businesses right across Australia, to seek access once again to high-quality goods and services from Australian companies. And there are reports too this morning that an article published by Chinese Customs talked about Australian lobster as one of the products that, you know, that's widely enjoyed by Chinese consumers. Is that sort of a hint that Aussie exports are again on the radar in a big way? I think it is. There's a huge demand within China. We know that for Australian products and services. So it's only a matter of time. And Chinese companies typically take their lead from the government authorities. And once they get an inkling that it's now okay to engage once again in these conversations with Australian exporters, I think we're going to see this this level of activity ramping up quite quickly. And how soon do you think it might be that an Australian business delegation actually travels to China? Well, there's certainly no shortage of people who want to travel to China. The big difficulty right now is the fact that it's just difficult from a health perspective to be able to travel safely into China. The COVID restrictions have certainly been eased, which is a great uh, benefit. I think everybody will be watching carefully the, uh, the situation, the health situation in China. My anticipation would be not before the end of March, which will be after the, the Party uh, People's Congress uh, taking place. There is a suggestion this morning that uh, China might like to see that Australia drops its anti-dumping case at the World Trade Organisation as a way to sort of smoothing over relations as well. Do you have a view on that? Well, there's certainly been a lot of commentary about uh, whether both nations would compromise uh, in some sort of way. I don't think there's any need at this stage for Australia to withdraw from any of the cases that it has before the WTO. The WTO is, after all, the appropriate mechanism that we've signed up to and that China has signed up to to resolve these sorts of difficult disputes. But having said that, the issues that we're dealing with are complex. Our relationship is complex. And diplomacy is often described as the art of compromise. So it wouldn't be surprising, and I think you know Australian people would accept that there might be some tactical compromises made at some stage. But at this point, I don't think there's any need for us to resolve or withdraw from any of those actions. 
And do you think uh, the appointment of former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd as our next US ambassador, someone who speaks Mandarin, might help? Well, look, I think Kevin Rudd's appointment as the ambassador of the United States uh, is an outstanding appointment. You know, he's an international uh, expert in China. He does, as you say, speaks Chinese. He spent a long time there. Um, I was uh, actually living in Beijing when he visited on many occasions. But he's also got a deep understanding of the international relations, in particular the relationship with the United States. Um, So I think he will serve our interests well from Washington. David Olson, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. David Olson is the president of the Australia-China Business Council. While Australian exporters seem to be back on the radar of Chinese authorities, the family and friends of two Australians who remain detained there, except it will be some time before they have cause to celebrate. Writer Yang Heng Jun is one of them, and his friend, Sydney academic Feng Chong Yi, says he hopes Chinese authorities will release him soon. They can uh, release Yang as they wish uh, at any time. There's no legal uh, obstacle for them to do that. They, they released many, many polit- uh, political prisoners before to the US, to, to, to Canada, to serve their political purpose. Sydney academic Feng Chong Yi. For many homeless and struggling people, visiting a Centrelink office to get support can be a confronting and an unproductive experience. So the federal government is trying something different. It's putting Centrelink staff in places that some of the most vulnerable people feel comfortable dropping into. And as Jane Barden reports, it's now extending this trial to more sites. People like young mum Andrea come to the Vinnie's homeless shelter every morning from places all around Darwin where they've been sleeping rough or couch surfing. To have breakfast, shower and wash clothes. You've got your little bambino here. Who's this? My son, named Kio. He's one and a half month. What do you like about being able to come here? Families and friends here. Yeah. I love it here, yeah. It's got plenty of feed, water. This is for our homeless people who come here, yeah. Most are Indigenous and many stay in places only for a short time. Walker, who's been living rough in Darwin for years, says it's easy to lose access to Centrelink, job seeker or disability support payments and hard to get them restarted at the Centrelink office. It is a bit intimidating when you've um, been in the long grass for a while, you sort of get disconnected from society and um, it's a bit intimidating to go in there and first thing you meet is a security guard at the door. So you more or less got to jump hoops to jump hoops to get into there. For three months, the federal government has trialled bringing a Centrelink worker here five mornings a week to help reconnect people to government payments. Since Centrelink's joined the um, Vinnies, we've had a wonderful service. And have you got assistance to get connected to anything yourself? I have Centrelink housing, but I've just got to wait because of the time of the year and Christmas and all that. Uh, And was that with Centrelink or with health services? Um, Centrelink, Vinnies, housing and just general stuff, you know, like day-to-day stuff, clothes and that. Today, former TV Island's cultural tour guide Harry Mankara has come to ask Centrelink worker Emma Harvey what happens with welfare payments over Christmas. Good morning, Emma. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Just come here to see you about my uh, Centrelink. And for help applying for jobs. I'm unemployed at the moment. I've got knowledge of new computer, but I'm struggling to actually get access to the computer, so... 
Finney's NT Chief Executive Rob Lutter says having the Centrelink service is helping a lot of clients. It's a major change for us. There are a lot of people missing payments because they're moving around a lot and staying in different places. Yeah, that's right. And the other one is also they, they may be banned from Centrelink, so um, they can't go there. The Darwin Vinnies has been one of four trial sites for the Community Partnership Programme. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten says he's extending the trial to 11 more homeless and drop-in centres nationally for a year. What we're doing is redirecting existing resources, so this initiative's not costing more. If you decide after another evaluation of all the sites that it's been really successful, will it become a permanent feature and are you going to try and have it everywhere where people need it? I hope it becomes an embedded feature, but we'll have to wait and see what the evidence shows. I'm interested in a safety net which catches everyone. Rough sleeper Walker is among those hoping the Centrelink service continues here. It's just the pleasant way that they've dealt with the situation and they've come here and they've said we're here and they've just put their arms around everyone and helped everyone out really. Darwin resident Walker speaking there with Jane Barden. Victoria's Supreme Court will deliver its judgment today on what could be a landmark decision on climate pollution. The case is the first test of whether the state's climate change laws can restrict the operation of coal-fired power stations. Flint Duxfield reports. As a child, Bronya Lipsky was very familiar with the coal power stations that dot the skyline of Victoria's Latrobe Valley. I grew up underneath the power stations. I grew up with a mum who's a nurse who looked after my sister who had really horrible childhood asthma and our story is not unique in the Latrobe Valley. Now the policy and advocacy manager at Environment Victoria is part of a legal case testing whether the state's Environmental Protection Agency is doing enough to consider Victoria's climate change laws in granting operations licences to coal-fired power stations. We really need our environment regulator to be considering the types of principles in the legislation that that are there to protect human health and are there to um, prevent um, climate change getting worse. Um, And as far as we're concerned, they didn't. In 2017, Victoria passed laws requiring all government agencies to consider climate change in their decisions. Last year, Environment Victoria used that legislation to challenge a decision by the EPA to allow three power plants run by AGL, Energy Australia and Alinta Energy to continue operating without imposing greenhouse gas emissions limits. Today, the Supreme Court is expected to hand down its judgement in a decision that could have wide-ranging implications for the operation of Victoria's power stations. If this case is successful, the EPA would be required to go back and remake the decisions about the appropriate limits for pollution emissions from the coal-fired power stations, taking into account important things like the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and the impacts of climate change and the impacts on human health to the Latrobe Valley community. Charlie Brumby-Rendell is a senior lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia, which is running the case. This might mean that they require the coal-fired power stations to implement best practice technologies, which we know uh, exists and has been implemented around the world in countries it's mandated like the US, the European Union and China. Uh, And we know that technology is able to reduce this toxic air pollution that that harms human health and the EPA should really be setting standards based on what will keep local people safe. AGL, Energy Australia and Alinta Energy declined to comment to the ABC ahead of the court decision. But all three of the Latrobe Valley power stations they own are already expected to close years earlier than initially planned. How additional regulation would affect their future is unclear. 
But Charlie Brumby-Randell believes a successful challenge would encourage further efforts by environment groups to combat climate change through the courts. It is quite significant that this case is the first case that will be testing that legislation. Uh, but I think uh, it is possible that, that if successful, this will really pave the way for other similar challenges to the regulation of pollution in Victoria. The Supreme Court is expected to hand down its decision at two o'clock Victorian time this afternoon. Flint Duxfield reporting. A day after a US Congressional Committee's historic decision to recommend criminal charges against Donald Trump, attentions switched to an impending decision by federal prosecutors. The Department of Justice is conducting its own investigation into the former president's involvement in the January the 6th attack on the US Capitol. And some legal experts say it could be months before any decisions are made. Here's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. The January 6th committee's decision to refer Donald Trump to the Justice Department marked a dramatic end to a lengthy investigation. But former federal prosecutor Shan Wu expects those who'll decide whether to actually bring charges against the former president still have a mountain of work ahead of them. I think uh, the Justice Department was rather late to the stance <laughs> and they're playing catch up. And in any event, Wherever they are in their investigation, there's so much evidence now, the transcripts, the over 1,000 witnesses, that they will have to review all of that. So there's going to be some delay. The committee referred Donald Trump on four criminal counts, including inciting or assisting an insurrection. Norm Eisen served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee for the former president's first impeachment and trial and is now a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He believes the panel made a convincing case for the insurrection charge but thinks it's the least likely count to be pursued by the department. It hasn't been prosecuted, Section 2383, since the Civil War era. A hundred over a hundred fifty years ago, uh, prosecutors don't like to bring novel claims, um, and you know I think the proof is there, but proving those elements perhaps is a little tougher. Longtime prosecutor Jack Smith has been appointed as special counsel to oversee both the January six investigation and a separate inquiry into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. Trump is also the subject of an election interference probe in the state of Georgia. And Norm Eisen says the January 6th committee's full report, due for release tomorrow, could assist prosecutors there. I'll be looking, since the Georgia decisions are looming, Trump could be charged as soon as the beginning of the new year. I'll be looking at uh, how the report helps advance and accelerate the Georgia. Uh, prosecutions, first and foremost. Donald Trump might have become the first president in US history to face criminal referrals from a congressional committee. But on his own social media platform, Truth Social, he remains defiant, criticising the inquiry's work and repeating the same false stolen election claims at the centre of its findings. This is Jade McMillan in Washington, reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.